All right, so we uh, start in on a new sermon series at this point over the Advent season. Uh, Pastor Matt is actually down in our church, uh, Seven Mile Road, Houston, this Sunday, so he is, is speaking there and uh, preaching on actually Mary, so he's very much in season as well uh, and dealing with uh, an Advent point of time. As we think about uh, this series over the next few weeks just leading up to Christmas, uh, our theme is really to think about what it would mean uh, if Jesus really and truly is one of us, about him coming to earth. Now we've spent some time in Hebrews over the fall and we're going to kind of pause that series and pick it up again come the spring. Uh, But actually we're going to look at a couple texts in Hebrews together over the next couple weeks and understand more about the virgin birth, to understand more about uh, what it means for Jesus to truly be human. And we kind of kick off this, this little mini-series with this morning, talking really about what it means for <clears throat> us and how we live every day with the fact of the incarnation. So if Jesus really became human and he lived this way, doesn't that change the way we live? Doesn't that change the way that we approach things? So we're going to dig into actually First John today, as Tracy just read, and kind of use this as a starting point over the next several weeks as we start to think around uh, what Advent means, what it means for Jesus coming and preparing for Christmas. So I'm going to have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump into that text together. God, we thank you for the chance to meet this morning. God, we ask that you would cause your word uh, to go deep into our, our ears and minds that we might hear and respond. God, I ask this morning that you would drive within us belief as a response, a response of our emotions, and a response of obedience, God. And these things would come out from the work that you would do within us this morning from your word in your name. Amen. So as we think about the Christmas season, right, you, you ever think it's kind of intriguing Uh, I don't know if you were really pumped about Christmas as a kid or not, but as you kind of lead into that, uh, there is actually quite a difference in view between children and adults about Christmas, right? Uh, I've never seen an adult get as pumped for Christmas as the kids usually are, right? Uh, It's pretty natural. Uh, And it's kind of funny, right? Oftentimes, kids and adults have very similar views on everything, right? Ice cream, movies, uh, there's plenty of things that we actually can have the same opinion on. Uh, But there's this kind of stark difference between the way children think about Christmas and oftentimes what we as adults think about. In fact, uh, in 2013, the Pew Research Study actually asked respondents, what is your least favorite thing about Christmas and the holiday season? That's a fun-loving survey, right? Uh, So here's some of their top answers of what they least enjoyed about the Christmas season. 33% of people said commercialism and materialism. All right, that's a good target. Go after that. 22% said high expenses. Okay, yeah, definitely. December's bad. I don't know if anyone else has like this terrible January feeling usually. Uh, I definitely can relate to that. Uh, And then 10% mentioned the crowds, the shopping, the parking, all of that bit. So those are kind of three things that people really dislike about Christmas and the holiday season uh, that all make sense as adults, right? Now, there were good things, too. I don't want to miss that, right? People said, like, positive things that they enjoy, being with family, people are happy and joyful, the religious reflection. So don't get me wrong, there's positive things to Christmas. But sometimes we don't really think about that negative end that comes up. Each of these things that I mentioned, those negative pieces, actually cause stress sometimes in our lives, right? There's kind of five uh, or so key stresses that come up around the Christmas time as well. One of those is this underlying expectation that everyone be happy and jolly, right? That's kind of a stressor. You're like, maybe I don't feel like it. Maybe I don't want to be happy and jolly. I mean, you have normal human emotions every day of the year, so suddenly at Christmas you act like you have no negative emotions. That's kind of strange. That put a lot of stress on you. 
another one is thinking about your schedule, right? Whose schedule just gets really crazy in December? It seems like every weeknight, every weekend, how am I going to fit this in? There's more things. There's interruptions to your life. All of that oftentimes causing stress. Then there's family, right? Family is family. Okay, so... As much as we love them, as much as we enjoy spending time with them, there is friction, there is stress sometimes to all that extra family time that we enjoy and see as part of it. Then, of course, there's the impact of, of actually loss that some of us have experienced, right? We've seen that. We we've, are missing loved ones who aren't there at this particular holiday. And as that happens, sometimes these events bring that to mind and bring heaviness uh, to the event. And then finally, there's this idea of just another year passing by, right? You know it's another Christmas. It's Christmas 2017. Whew, I've had a few of those, right? So all of these keep adding up over time. So there's all this impact on us that actually can make the holiday season very depressing or depleting to us as, as we kind of go about it. And really, it's not just a Christmas, right? That happens to us kind of 364 days a year uh, as well, beyond this one day kind of move from humdrum to crisis and back again. We're sometimes left with asking these kind of really uh, philosophical or existential questions about ourselves, right? We wonder, is this all there is? Is this the life I'm really meant to be living? You ever have that kind of identity question? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Or how do I even go on with maybe this real hurt and pain that I am feeling and experiencing? So we're looking for help, significance, or purpose for all of these things that we're going through then what does the Christian faith offer us in response to all of these essential emotions, these existential feelings that we have, these heavy concerns? A baby. Baby Jesus? That's what we're offering in the midst of the circumstances. So how could Jesus becoming a baby make a difference in the real life that we live in on a daily basis? That's what we want to kind of unpack today, that wild reality of God coming near to us in Jesus and how life and joy came with him. You're undoubtedly heard that before, right? That's kind of what we do in Christmas. We sing this like Joy to the World song. You've probably heard that. There's joy and life and stuff in like almost all these Christmas songs that we sing. So it's not about just hearing this once more time again, but trying to explain from 1 John chapter 1 why life and joy are, ex- are experienced by Jesus becoming human. And as we gain that better understanding, uh, I'm going to have a big ask this morning. I've been praying this week, really thinking about us, that we're asking God to really, by His Spirit, give us a sense of life and joy this holiday season. So that's something I'm praying for each man, each woman, each family here, that that would be what God does in our hearts over these next few weeks together. On Sundays, we'll be going through passages, trying to get you ready for that, but also praying that God would do that work in you in the in-between time so that you can be thinking about what God needs to do in your heart around life and joy through this season. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app and you want to go ahead and park in 1 John chapter 1, that would be great. I'm going to be bringing in a lot of different passages today, and I'm going to read those to you. But you don't need to move around. I'll read those to you, so if you can just hang tight in 1 John chapter 1, we're going to work through those first four verses of the chapter together. Uh, 1 John was written by the Apostle John, a follower of Jesus. He wrote this letter to the early church, and it bears similarities to a gospel you might have heard of as well, the gospel of John that's in the, the front part of the New Testament as well. And there's a lot of similar themes and elements that run throughout uh, both his letter and his gospel. And we'll look at these first four verses as, as kind of the prologue of his letter and understand what did he see as most essential as he wrote this to his early hearers. And in these verses, we'll see that the incarnation, and what I mean by that, to make sure we're all clear on incarnation, means the truth of Jesus becoming human, that that actually means life and joy for us. So God is shown 
and known to us in Jesus, or simply by God coming near, life and joy are here. By God coming near, life and joy are here. We're going to look at really these two existential incarnational implications about life and joy. What do they mean? What is John bringing us to? So if you look at the passage that Tracy had read for us, just those first verses, uh, it said, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So John sets himself as an eyewitness, and he immediately calls himself to the senses that he used and that he's using as the empirical evidence to prove that he knows what he's talking about when he talks about Jesus coming in the flesh. He says, hey, I've heard him. Okay? I've seen him. I've touched him. He really and truly became human. That's how John starts off his letter, to make sure there's no doubt what he's talking about and puts himself as an expert witness. Then he goes in to describe a little bit more theologically rich description of Jesus and what happened with him coming to earth. And it's not really just theology of like the sterile classroom of like this is fun stuff to really kick around in your head. He's starting off his letter to an early church who has problems that has to live in the real world, and that's how he wants to anchor his initial truth, to make sure that that's understood. So when you think about living our everyday life in the Christmas season, we've got Monday through Friday coming up here again. Uh, it's getting less and less weeks uh, to finish off the year. You think about all the things that have to get done. These are essential truths for how we approach the, the coming week. So the first implication that comes from Jesus becoming man is life. So you cannot read these verses in 1 John chapter 1, kind of those few verses, even if you just run your eyes over it, you see the word life showing up multiple times uh, in the text. And really we see that there's three descriptors of this life. There's the word of life, the manifest life, or the life that is manifested, and eternal life. Now it might seem odd to mention life as kind of this existential implication, right? Because if you're not experiencing life, then this is a pretty one-sided conversation I'm having right now with you, right? So... Obviously, you're living, you're, you're here, that's part, so what, what do you mean? What do you mean life? Well, John tells us so much about Jesus being life because it's the most basic thing that we all require and also because the experience of life is the thing that we most desire. Okay, so life is very important. We know it comes in, into play, but really he's anchoring this on kind of the full-orbed exposure and this idea that life that Jesus brings and gives is more than just physical life. So to understand what uh, Jesus means to us as life, we have to look kind of deeper at what John is saying here uh, in these words that he's chosen about uh, the word of life, the manifested life, and the eternal life. And to do so, we actually have to do a little bit of biblical theology this morning. We have to spend our time looking at what the Bible has to say about these really loaded and pregnant words at the very beginning of his statement. So that's what we're going to try to unpack together to give us that background to know why is John so worked up about this? Why is this essential for me to understand what it is? So let's start with the first one. If you look at the end of verse 1, it kind of says, the word of life. So what does the word of life mean? Well, uh, these words John used to refer to Jesus as the word of life are ripe with theological import. He opens it by pointing out that from the beginning, this is who we're dealing with, and he has been this word of life. So to understand that, it points to creation is the first thing that comes about. So there's a connection between the Jesus who became human and the very beginning of life at creation. Unlike any other myth story that tries to tell about the creation of the world or the origin of humanity, the Hebrew Bible boils that down to the spoken word of God. 
The spoken word of God caused all things to be made. It wasn't procreation, it wasn't war, it wasn't building by hands. The world came about by spoken word. The words of Genesis 1 explain, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. It's all boiled down to the speech act of God. Thus, the action of God is united with his word. The action of God is united with his word. So what better way to explain what happens with Jesus than to designate him as God's word? John's gospel, a different book, there in the early pages of your New Testament, in chapter 1 talks about the word was from the beginning, was in fact actually God, and all, uh, all things that were made were made by him. And it's even emphatic that there's nothing that the word has not made. So the word of creation is part of this word of life concept that John is trying to get across to us. Okay, so that's really important. This is how it started. Okay, the word of life means the creation of life, the creation of the world. But it means something else as well that Jesus is meeting for us. It means the word of the prophet. This is also bundled up in this word. So you think about the Old Testament scriptures, that former covenant and what happened. God spoke to his people through prophets all throughout your Bible. If you flip backwards in it at all from where we're at right now, pretty much you're going to start running into prophets who are writing down God's word. They stood as go-betweens for God. The distant and transcendent God would speak to humanity through human words, and he would work through a person. We would call them a prophet. And they would speak God's word to God's people. Now think about this. God created the world, and he could have remained distant from humanity. He could have just sat way up away, watched it. Maybe it was some kind of like, we had an ant farm. It'd be kind of that concept. You're like, I don't know, just watch them do their thing. Uh, all of that. God could have acted like that, but God didn't do that. He chose to interact with humanity. He accommodated himself and stooped down to humanity and revealed himself. Think about it. We would never know that God was there and what he was like unless God chose to do so. He's so distant. He's so unlike us. He doesn't need to do that. But God in his sovereign grace chose to reveal himself so we would know there is a God. And not only did he reveal us about the knowledge of the existence of God, but he also brought to us understanding of who he is by speech. Right? He spoke to the prophets so they could be revealed and known. And that accommodated language, using human language, real nouns and verbs in the world to make his point known to us. So that's essential love that, that God put toward us with this idea of prophets and what they've done. Uh, but what, and the, the people of Israel knew that. They knew that God was loving them by the way he stooped down to speak to them. So they had this great love for the word of the prophets. There's all kinds of verses throughout the Old Testament that point to this, but I'm just going to highlight two really quickly for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 and 48, Moses said, Take to heart all the words of which I'm writing to you today, that you may command them to your children, and that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For there is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So there's this connection between the word of the prophets and life. They knew these were words of life, of how to live, of how to find life and not to die. Then in Psalm 119, this is a whole song celebrating just the word of God received from, received from God through the prophets. Twelve times in this chapter, it talks about life in relationship to God's word. Just one example is in Psalm 119, 25 and 26. Uh, the writer says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life 
according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. So the word of the prophets was so closely associated with life. So you have that kind of quick context to know that's what meant. That's why it was so important in the first half of the Bible. But then now let's hear these words that we preached on just a few months ago in Hebrews 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. There the, the writer of Hebrews said, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So he's setting up very clearly for us that Jesus replaces the Old Testament prophets as that final word, that emphatic word of God. So as, as we hear him referred to as the word of life, it's very clear that this is God's further revelation to make sure that we understand more of what God is like because of what he said to us via Jesus. So if you're hanging with me here, I uh, know there's a lot, of, a lot of text, a lot of running through this. So we're talking about that word of life from 1 John chapter 1 and that verse 1, trying to unpack the real meaning of that. So there's associated with that the idea of creation, the idea of the word of the prophets. There's one more piece here that you can't miss that's bundled up in this really important word, and that's the idea that this is also the word of the gospel. So we say gospel a lot around here. If you've seen it, it's probably on like half a dozen signs around the building as well. The gospel is a technical term in the Bible, and it's used to mean good news or a good report, and it's often associated with a royal announcement. So when the Christian church refers to the gospel, it is usually declaring that amazing royal announcement that God is king and that there are cosmic and personal implications to the fact that God is king. And so, as an individual, we are being told by the king of the universe to repent of our sins, turn away from them, and believe Jesus. Believe that Jesus came, that he died, and that he rose again for you. That's the gospel in a small format there. That's the good news that's bundled up in uh, this idea of life coming from the word of Jesus. But don't just take my word for it. I want to throw two texts at you that help to drive home the idea that if this gospel is true, this royal announcement of the work that Jesus has done that's important for us, then we have to see that there's a direct correlation between Jesus and that gospel. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, He says, Paul says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, Paul, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life, and immortality to light through the gospel. So Jesus' coming brought life. He brought that life to light is the imagery that he's using. Or the word of the gospel is simply Jesus bringing life. That's what's coming with Jesus' appearance. Paul says it again in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, he's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here Paul is uniting that creative word that God who spoke the whole world into existence is also the same God who is speaking now through Jesus to say, here is life. Here is my gospel. Believe it. That same connection is wed for us there. So the biblical theology at work here is the word of creation, the word of the prophets, the word of the gospel. All of these are located and referenced in the idea of Jesus being the word of life. So what does that mean? Why is that important? How does that change what I'm doing? Well, we wouldn't be here 
without Jesus creating. That's life. We wouldn't know God as we do without Jesus, so that's life. And we wouldn't have heard the gospel announcement without Jesus. That's life. But not only is Jesus the word of life, John is going to use two other phrases here. Not only is he the word of life, but he's also the manifested life. So manifest isn't uh, the everyday word uh, that we, we throw around here, but it is in our text here. It means to make visible, to make clear. So John is writing to say, God wouldn't be as clearly known or visible to humanity without Jesus. But in fact, Jesus is that actual manifestation of life. He's actually that clarifying view of what God is like. He's enfleshed. He's incarnate. So let's think about this just a little bit. Try to think about this idea of manifesting. So my day job, uh, I get to travel maybe three or four times a year. It's about the right pace with a young family and also uh, church responsibilities and stuff. And and I enjoy it. It's pretty cool. So I was making a trip out uh, to Hong Kong for the first time a few months ago. And uh, I traveled over there. I had kind of an acclimation day, which basically means you're so jet-lagged from flying across the world that you need like a day to get your life in order before you show up in, the, in work on Monday. And so I show up at like 5 a.m. in the morning, and the goal, I put on my tennis shoes and try to stay on my feet and awake until about 7 p.m. that night, and that's a win. So if you can do that, then you win. You win the whole jet-lag game, and you can keep running. So uh, I'd put those on, got to Hong Kong for the first time, and I had read on some kind of website about reviews or something that's, that's kind of helpful uh, about this interesting peak tram that's in Hong Kong. So what it is is it takes you kind of way up into the mountain at Hong Kong, and you're able to get this amazing view of, of really the harbor and all the skyline and everything. And I thought, well, i got a few hours to kill. Sounds like a great idea. Uh, so made my way over there pretty early in the morning. I uh, got, got on the tram. There's almost no one else there that early in the morning. It's a little uh, less tourist-friendly at that time. So got there, uh, hopped on the tram, rode up there, waiting for my view, waiting for my view. Okay, there's like tree cover, there's things there. Couldn't really spot anything. Get to the summit. I step out of the tram through the station. And I walk outside of this open-air view so I can see all of Hong Kong's harbor. I look out there, and there's the densest fog I've ever seen in my life. I can't see probably five or seven feet in front of me, to be honest. I mean, I'm walking around going, maybe it's, maybe it's over here. I don't know, is there smoke? This is really thick. I'm trying to see if I can get around it. I'm up there for like a half hour. I find out there's actually another building just a little ways over there that I couldn't see the whole time that I was like, oh, let me walk over to this other building that's up here. Keep walking around thinking, okay, maybe the fog's going to go. Waste about a couple hours. Nothing. Can't see anything up at the top. So I finally go, okay, it's time to come on down. So I get in, the, get in the tram again to go down, kind of start going down the mountain, get about maybe 50 yards down. All of a sudden, break out of that fog. All of a sudden, I get this amazing view. I can see the harbor all spread across of Hong Kong. I can see all the skyline of big buildings all set out. And I go, wow, that's really something. That's the idea of manifestation. It moved it from just being an invisible distant thing that I had no concept for what it looked like, and it brought it right up, full screen, you can't miss it, right in front of your eyes. That's what Jesus did for God. He made God visible to us. We broke through the fog. We're able to finally see this is what he's like. So as Jesus does that for us and makes him very clear and understandable, that's what John is referencing when he says in verse 2 about the, manifest, the life was made manifest to us and that that's what he's communicating. So think about what this does. So if, if this life is manifested to us, it's doing really two things for us. It's manifesting, one, that God is dwelling with us. 
So through Jesus becoming human, God dwells with his people. The Old Testament hope was longing, longing for a way in which this transcendent, distant God could be known and loved and dwell with his people. This great hope was kind of realized in kind of small formats with the tabernacle, with the temple, got tastes of what it would be like for God to dwell with them. But still late in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 37, one of these later prophets, he talked about still a hope of uh, God saying, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So then imagine when this same John writes in John chapter 1 and verse 14 of his gospel, And he has this startling statement to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So God had promised in Ezekiel to dwell with His people, to be with them. But nobody was imagining God to come and take on human flesh and to live among humanity way more than they would have expected. Way more than they could have dreamed. How clear, how poignant is it to see God in human form in front of us? He was a way to make God near and to make God clear. But also, this manifestation has this idea of knowledge associated with it, right? You can't miss that. Manifesting makes us know God. So further in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, and verse 18, he talks about the manifestation even stronger. A key point of the Hebrew Bible, you may have noticed, is the idea that God is invisible. Right? You think about all the work that, that people do sometimes to represent their gods uh, in different ways with statues, with idols, with pictures. The Hebrew, Hebrew Bible, the God of the Bible in creation, is not depicted. In fact, he prohibited images, things to look at, to describe what he was like because none of them could capture what he was truly like. So in that sense, it would make very obvious sense, I should say, that no one would really have this kind of connection visibly or understanding quite the same way if God was never seen, if God was never represented in front of them. So then when John says in in his gospel, in verse 18 of, of chapter 1, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. He explains that he really has brought God to us. That even though God can't be seen, God the Father, and we wouldn't have seen him at all before that, we now see Jesus. And Jesus gives us that opportunity to know what he's like. And let's be honest, right? I'll I'll try try to be clear on this. It's not like Jesus walking down the street and we personally get that empirical evidence of seeing him walk among us. But we do have the reported testimony. We do have a clarity of understanding from the stories that are captured for us in the Bible that we hear about him in, in full technicolor, in full understanding of what it was like to see God in human form walking around, what he did, what he was like, uh, how did that work. The idea of, of this, uh, this verse uh, from, first, uh, excuse me, from John chapter 1, verse 18, is the idea that, that Jesus actually explains for us God. The, the word is really exegesis here that, that's happening, that God, or that Jesus actually exegetes God for us. You may have see, heard us use that word a few times to describe preaching. What we're trying to do in preaching is to take the word of God and then kind of lead out the information, the meaning of it, so that you can have an understanding of it. That, that's good preaching. That's what we're trying to do on a given Sunday. Might not do it great from time to time, but that's what we're aiming for. So when we do that, that's what Jesus did for God the Father. He exegeted God for us. He explained him, reported him, brought out that truth so we would actually know what God is like. We would see his compassion. We would see his love. We would know what mercy looks like. We would see grace. We would understand God's power and his miraculous abilities because of what we see in Jesus. 
Then finally, the last bit about life, as you see from 1 John chapter 1, as you notice in, in verse, uh, verse 3, um, this idea of eternal life. Finally, we see that John mentions Jesus proclaiming eternal, eternal life. So this is life that is available because of Jesus becoming human. This point is so critical to associate eternal life with Jesus that in this same book, 1 John, at the very end of the book, in chapter 5, he actually comes back to this theme to kind of wrap it up again. In 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, he says, And this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Pretty straightforward. There's not much to add to his comments there. He's very clear. But what is this idea of never-ending life, okay, this eternal life? Well, the God who has always been and the God that will always be has the ability to grant life that never ends. The qualifier of eternal life associates our future with the life that God enjoys. So, uh, John goes on to say a little later in that, in that last chapter of this book, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. That's Jesus. He brings that life to us, that connection. John would call it fellowship. John would say we have something in common with God when he grants us that life. We're like the Father, we're like the Son in the sharing of that eternal life that we can enjoy with him. So do you feel this? God came near in Jesus, and that means life. A word of life in that we can find our purpose as we encounter the God of creation. A word better than the prophets and the living word of the gospel. The life that we celebrate at Christmas is one that makes God knowable to us and offers us something in common with God via eternal life. When we think about the challenges of life, I can tell you that they pale in the level of importance. How can we not see what God has done for us in sending us Jesus to become human for us? Okay, so think through this. Think about the challenges, the heaviness of our life. Okay, God knew your weakness, and he sent Jesus to become human. God knew your pain and your hurt and that that heavy, heavy pain that you wear, and he sent Jesus to become human. God knew of your forgetfulness and your hurry throughout the season and really most of our lives, and he sent Jesus to become human. So God came near to us, and life is here for us. John ends his opening prologue that he shared these things in writing, if you look at verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. So look at verse 4 as we, we talk about joy. Just to remind ourselves in the text, 1 John 1, 4 says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There's a mutuality in this, whether it's our joy, your joy, uh, going through there, uh, this reading. The output of this truth about Jesus coming incarnate, this entire Advent season, the idea of the life that comes with, uh, with him has an output of joy. We share that with both John's original readers and it continues on for us as modern day hearers. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever had like truth really impact you to have an emotion? That the truth is so strong and so powerful that it actually elicits a response from you. Have you seen it happen in other people? So I was thinking about uh, where I've seen this most poignantly. And I think about uh, kind of a, a guy that I know from China. His name's uh, Leon. 
my wife had an opportunity, she went to China kind of for a work thing and was meeting this, uh, this Chinese student of hers. He was a professor, she was teaching, uh, teaching teachers there uh, in English and got to know him. My wife loves to meet people, talks a lot about uh, Jesus in some of these settings and kind of just continued on with the training. They came to kind of this field trip where all the students in the class would get a chance to go uh, kind of to this Buddhist temple and go check it out. So uh, during that time, this, this guy, uh, Leon, wanted to kind of catch up with Katie and ask some questions about Jesus and understand a little bit more. So you can picture the setting, okay, there's this giant, very, very tall Buddhist statue, uh, a Buddha on this side. There's these steps that people are kind of making their way up the steps. And then there's kind of this gazebo thing over here to get you out of the hot sun. It's probably not really a gazebo, but, you know, that's what I would call it, uh, that's over there. And he's asking questions. And she's telling him, okay, this is, let me tell you about Jesus, okay? He was born. He came to earth. He lived this life. He lived for us. And he, he did these amazing miracles. And he kind of struggled with the concept of miracles. And he kind of said, okay, what, what is that? Uh, and he kind of used the word glories because they looked at the text together. And he said, glories, okay, that's, that's a miracle. So the glories of Jesus were, is how he thought of miracles. And I was like, not bad. That, that works. Uh, kind of goes through. She builds a story. And, and he's very convinced to understand, wow, this Jesus sounds like a really... Uh, really great guy. Um, seems like he was very moral, really kind to people, loved them, could do some miraculous things. That's amazing. And then the story turns, right? Started to hear about the, the chief uh, Sadducees and the, the Pharisees turning against Jesus, these religious leaders. Heard about the Romans and heard that they put this innocent man to death. Leon, Leon just couldn't believe it. He was thinking, wow, that just sounds terrible that, that, that they would do this. This guy was truly a righteous man. He did these great things. Why would you kill someone like this? And then at that point, Katie mentions that he's been raised from the dead. That Jesus came out of the tomb and he was alive. The emotion this guy had, the shock. Can you, can you think through that? I mean, he's never heard the story. He's thinking, maybe I'm missing something in the, in the, in the English translation here. The guy was dead, right? We, we said he was dead. And now you're saying he's alive? I mean, he was shocked. This was unfathomable to him to have never heard this story before. He's like, this was a good guy. He died. And you're saying he lives? Incredible. He was moved. This is a grown man, okay? He's an associate professor. Great things. Does amazing scientific work. And he was like uncontrollable in his understanding. How could this be true? How could this man have come? Can you imagine the surprise that welling up within him to understand, I don't know what you're talking about, but if the end of the story is a dead guy came back to life, this is something i got to hear more about. And we didn't move in the midst of emotion. It took months of Skype calls and walking through the Gospel of John with this guy. And then we got the great chance of having him come to a church plant we were working on in Somerville and got to disciple this guy for a year. But he trusted Jesus. He believed in him. And you saw that unreserved emotional response from someone who just couldn't believe the truth. And I ask us, how do we see the incarnation? Have we been so callous to this that we look past it, that it has no response from our hearts, that we can't see the joy that comes from the idea that God has brought life to us and it has to pull out a response of joy? How do you not see that? We would be left in our misery, in this mess that we have in this world if Jesus had not come down to us. It's not to dismiss these heavy emotions that we have during this time, right? Jesus affirms sorrow. In John chapter 16, he actually talks about sorrow being turned to joy. And he talks about the fact that really that's part of life and that they will experience joy as disciples when people left. But he gives hope. He says there's, a, there's an expiration date to sorrow. This isn't going to last forever. 
Your sorrow will be turned to joy. And he locates that in himself. And actually throughout uh, chapter 16, he actually calls his disciples to say, you know what's actually going to be different or how you're going to get through the sorrow? He talks about prayer. He says, if you ask anything of the Father in my name, I will do it. And he calls people to understand that there can be joy found in asking God to do that work. He says in John 16, 24, ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. The full joy that John 16, 24 mentions to us is exactly this word that we have in front of us in 1 John 4 when it says your joy may be complete. This is the offer that Jesus gives to us that even though the pain is real, Jesus knew it from the death of his friend Lazarus. He knew it from his disciples. But he says there's hope for joy and we ask for it. We plead with God to work to give us joy in the midst of our pain to overcome it. So what we're asking God to do in each of our lives this week, this Advent season as we get ready, and our prayer for our church, is that we would be moved by the truth of Jesus truly becoming one of us and experience joy. That's not something you can conjure up, right? It's not something you can make happen. It's something that we look for God to do within us. So how should we live? What are the three points of application here that we can come away from? First of all, hold on to life. Whether it's for the first time or for the umpteenth time, you need to see Jesus as life. He literally embodies it, he exudes it, and effuses it. The human existence is really just a battle for life, right? We long for it. We do everything we can to protect life. So it shouldn't be strange to turn to God and seek life in Jesus. It's in our very nature to crave that and find eternal life in him. So if you haven't taken hold of life from Jesus, move toward him. Ask what this life is that he's offering. How can I have it? It is found in belief that Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again for you. It's personal, it's cosmic, and it's existential. If you've believed in Jesus, you need to continue to turn and take hold of him, the real life that you need. He'll provide your purpose and your significance through this season. Not only take hold of life, but also stir the joy within you. Stir it up. You can't fake it. Presents aren't going to get it done. So what's the incredible reality? Uh, it's the incredible reality that God hasn't left us in this mess. We can look around us. We can see it in our neighborhoods. We can see it on the news on a constant basis. You see a mess. You see a world desperately in need of Jesus. You cannot look outside and think that this is what we're aiming for. This is the hope that we have. It just doesn't add up. But God didn't stay distant and leave us in that. No, he came near and we have fellowship with God. So God has met us in our sorrows with Jesus. He's turned our sorrows to joy. And if we reflect in the fact that Jesus will overcome, that's how we can make it through this ongoing season. And finally, not only do we take hold of life, not only do we stir the joy within us, but honestly, we need to take in these truths, right? You've got to bring these things to mind over this Advent season. John said it like this, that these things have been testified, they've been proclaimed, they've been written. He's, he's making sure this information is out there for you. And so this Christmas season, this time of Advent, Advent, we need to do our work of soaking up this information. If you don't feel like celebrating Christmas, if you don't feel like it really is Christmas, or if you're bothered by all the things that I've mentioned at the beginning about the season or the stress of the holidays, turn, turn your eyes back to the Incarnation. Think about what God's done for you in this life. 
that changes your approach to a crowded parking lot. That can change your mind to how you interact and deal with family or coworkers at a holiday party. Honestly, we have to put ourselves to remind, uh, to put ourselves in a position to remind ourselves of these truths. Read the scriptures, Luke 2, John 1 that we've referenced a lot this morning. Listen to theologically rich carols, um, like the second and third verses of many hymns, to be honest. Uh, a lot of them hark the herald angels sing is a great example to think through those extra verses. And if you're not streaming, casting crowns, Michael Card, Chris Tomlin, somebody else, hey, you're, you're not bringing this stuff into your life to really be thinking on the Christmas message. And that is what's going to tune us to be uh, more in the spirit and understand the incarnation. So again, it's engaging our mind, turning it to this truth, but then allowing that truth to truly drive our emotions and our obedience to live in light of what God has done for us in giving Jesus. He truly and really became one of us, and from that, life and joy came to us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words. Pray you would do a great work within us this season, God. Don't know what you aim for in each of our lives, of everyone in this room, but God, I ask that you would bring people to life for the first time. God, that you would give us life and joy for many times, for those of us who have uh, so easily burdened by the challenges of the season, God, that you would come to us in a new way. We trust your spirit to do that work of joy within us based on truth in your name. Amen.